Hello and welcome to the You're an Asset podcast. I'm your host, Casey the Dollar. And on this podcast, we find out who is an asset in the financial industry and who is just an ass. On this week's episode, we are doing round two of comments formed as questions that we get on social media that I feel like are important for us to go over here on the show. And so today we have a Q&A episode where if you think I'm an asset, go ahead and drop a sunglasses emoji in the comment section. If you are listening you can watch You're an Asset on YouTube. Yeah, we got pop-ups. We got things going on. All of these questions are going to fly onto the screen. Um, and we're going to go through 10 different questions here. So let's go ahead and get into it. The first question that I have says, are you licensed in Oklahoma? Yes, absolutely. Power3 Financial, myself, McCall, Ryan, we are all licensed in Oklahoma. But I'm using this question because... We are actually licensed in 48 out of the 50 states. The two exceptions are New York and Iowa. Iowa, we're not licensed in only because there's some extra steps that you have to take to get your insurance license in Iowa. And we just haven't had anybody want to get a policy from Iowa. Now, if you're listening and you're from Iowa and you want to get a policy with us, it's not that we won't work in Iowa. We just don't at this very second. Now, New York is a whole other story. New York makes it so tricky to get a life insurance license as a non-resident. It's just extra steps, a long process, and they regulate the products that can be sold to New York residents which is funny because people think the insurance industry is not regulated. It very much is. But if you do want to get a policy and you do live in New York, I do have people that I can refer you to. Definitely still reach out. We're also always happy to make sure that you have the information you're looking for. But so for anyone listening that it lives in any other state, we can do business there. Power 3 Financial is licensed all over the place. Question number two says, I was told you couldn't get one for your grandkids unless you had one for yourself. Is that true? And of course, when they say one, they mean an IUL. No matter what, the legal guardian of the child, anybody younger than 18, the legal guardian of the child has to be the owner of the policy. If grandma or grandpa is not the legal guardian of the child, they cannot own an IUL or any other life insurance policy on their grandkid. Now, grandma or grandpa can pay for the life insurance policy on the grandkid while the legal guardian is the owner of the policy. The question about having to have your own coverage before you can get a minor a policy is true, right? So any legal guardian wanting to own a policy on a minor needs to have double the amount of coverage that they're trying to purchase on the child. Why? Because 
If you're going to open a policy on a child, but you have no insurance yourself, it looks kind of fishy to the insurance carrier. They're thinking, why should the child have life insurance coverage when mom or dad or legal guardian does not have coverage? Why isn't everyone in the family protected? Why are we trying to get this child death benefit coverage, right? So it's a precautionary thing. If the kid's going to have life insurance, mom and dad, legal guardian, grandma and grandpa, they better have coverage too. Question number three, does the trust have to be established first or can the beneficiary be changed later? The answer is no. So what happens when you set up a life insurance policy is that the beneficiary and the owner of the policy can be changed throughout the life of the policy. So if you want to get your life insurance policies set up and then you want to go ahead and get a trust opened later, you can then go back to your life insurance policy, change the beneficiary to your new trust, change the ownership of the policy to your new trust. No problem at all. There are forms called ownership change and the beneficiary can be changed as easily as going into your back office, update the beneficiary, and you are good to go. That's called having a revocable beneficiary, right? So that is something that's important to ask the insurance agent that you're working with. Hey, does this policy have a revocable beneficiary? If they were to say, no, you can't change the beneficiary, then you wouldn't be able to change the beneficiary to the trust once you opened it. However, in most cases, it is absolutely fine to get your life insurance set up, which actually I would recommend that if you don't have a trust and you don't have life insurance, but you want both of them, go ahead and get your life insurance policy set up because the life insurance coverage can then be over your head. You can start funding your policy. You can start building a cash value and the trust process can take a while. So why wait and put off the life insurance when Basically, you're missing out on compound interest and don't feel like you need to do one before the other. It's absolutely fine to change things around. Question number four says, no one has talked about BMI and IULs. My policy doubled because I have a higher BMI. Is this normal? And they said they canceled before the cutoff, but she wants an IUL. This is a really good question because you're right. No one one talks about BMI and IUL, but 100% height and weight is considered as a part of the underwriting process to get approved for an IUL. So I want to give you some examples here of height and weight markers for getting approved at a standard health rating. For starters, I'm going to I'm going to go with the first height that I have on the chart, okay? 4.10. If you're 4.10, you have to weigh no more than 185 pounds, male or female to get a standard health rating. If you're 410 and you weigh more than 185 pounds, no no shame. Like I am in no way wanting to offend anybody or make anybody upset if if you don't fall into that into those guidelines. BMI is stupid. But I do feel like the underwriting guidelines are reasonable, okay? If you disagree with that, feel free to drop the peach emoji in the comments. Let's talk about another height, okay? So five, let's go to five, five. If you're five, five, male or female, 
You have to weigh no more than 233 pounds to get a standard health rating. We went up seven inches and we went up another 50 pounds. Now, the person said that their insurance doubled because of her BMI. So, I mean, I don't know what her height and weight are. I have never seen the cost of insurance double, but you would have to be outside of these limitations and then they would give you a different health rating that matches where you fell in those charts. Height and weight definitely comes into play. I don't see that it's so strict. Um, whatever carrier this is that this, this person was working with, um, every carrier is different, but it shouldn't double your cost of insurance unless you're way outside of these charts. And honestly, I go over the underwriting guidelines with people beforehand, especially if they're curious about it, they're worried about getting approved, we can sit here and dissect the underwriting guidelines, go through all of this stuff and figure out right where we're going to land ahead of time. So it really sucks, honestly, that this person had to go through the entire process just to, at the end, not be happy with the health rating and see that the cost of insurance is going to be so much more expensive. Power 3 Financial would be happy to help you get through underwriting and make sure you're prepared for whatever the outcome of the policy is going to be. Speaking of cost of insurance... Question number five says, fees, fees, fees. How many different types of fees it cost? <laughs> I love when the grammar uh, uh, in the comment section is just like so good. But uh, fees, right? So happily talk about the, the fees and the cost of insurance. So there are three different kinds of fees associated with an IUL. We have the cost of insurance, the administrative fees, and the premium expense charge. So there are three of them. Fees, fees, fees. The cost of insurance um, will depend on your health rating, the size of the death benefit, male or female, your age, things like that. It, it's inexpensive. It's the lowest fee of all three of them. Okay. The cost of insurance does go up each year depending on the type of policy. Most of the time when we are setting up policies with minimum death benefit, the death benefit is increasing over time. So that cost of insurance is getting just a little bit more expensive every year. Now, the most expensive of the three is the administrative fees. The administrative fees on a cash value life insurance policy like the IUL are in order to maintain the policy, to give you the back office, right, where you can access your policy, to maintain the investments that are helping you earn interest, the customer service desk that's available, the 0% floor that you have within your policy, the call options, which is another part of managing the investments that is part of the administrative fees. There's also going to be different features inside your policy, like living benefits and overloan protection. There are certain features that are special to certain carriers or something called a protective death benefit provision. So to maintain the policy, to offer all these different features, we kind of see all of that worked into the administrative fees. The administrative fees are going to be, like I said, the most expensive. Let's say, you know, we're talking about $100,000 death benefit. The cost of insurance was $100 for the year. Your administrative fees might be $600. The administrative fees do go up. The insurance carrier is managing more money. You have more money that is tracking certain indexes. And so we do see that increase over time. Now, the last one, the premium expense charge. The premium expense charge 
is a percentage of the annual premium that you contribute each year. It can go away at a certain point. The One of the carriers that we use has a 10-year surrender period, and that means the premium expense charge only lasts for 10 years. So on year 11, there is no premium expense charge. There is only the admin fees and the cost of insurance. But so let's say that same $100,000 death benefit policy, you're contributing six grand to it. Six grand um, is your annual premium. In some cases, it could be 5%, $300, right? And take everything that I'm saying with a grain of salt. I don't have a cost of insurance breakdown in front of me right now. So I believe I just said $300 plus $600 plus $100, okay? So that would be $1,000 for the year. The rest of that money, the other five grand, is liquid going into your account value and it's gonna go earn interest. If if the $1,000 out of the six grand seems unreasonable to you, think about it like this. You could take the same $1,000 and buy a half a million dollar term policy and pay the $1,000 every year for the next 30 years. But if you don't die, then that $1,000 did nothing for you and that's what 30 grand. So would you rather pay it into the IUL and be able to build an asset? Because ultimately that's the benefit that you're getting is you're building an asset that you can ultimately leverage. The underlying cost of insurance is not that expensive and your policy is earning interest. You're not going to get that from a term policy where you're paying the same money just for the death benefit. What ends up happening by even... It could be year five, as late as year 15, right? If you're doing a really low amount into your policy. But what we see is that the overall value of the policy gets so big that when you earn interest every year, that interest is covering the cost of insurance and actually still adding more money to your cash value. And you continue to pay into the policy in the form of premiums. So at that point, the interest is paying off your policy. It's growing your cash value. You're still funding it. And majority of that money is just going to add to the value of your policy as well. And so what we like to say is that the policy is fully collateralized. It's earning enough interest to cover the cost of insurance. And that's when we really start seeing massive compound interest inside of an IUL. Don't let the fees scare you. There's a cost to everything. Question number six, can someone have an initial contribution? So the, we need some context here, right? This person is wondering if they can do a lump sum into their policy on year one. They might be wondering if they can put a lump sum in and jumpstart the cash value. But I personally and Power 3 Financial, we don't like lump sums. And let me tell you why. You can put one, okay? I'm not here to tell you that you cannot do a bigger initial contribution. You absolutely can. But what happens when you do that? Let's say you want to put in $10,000 as an initial contribution. And then the following year, you want to contribute $300 a month. $300 a month is $3,600 a year. When you put in the $10,000, you had to buy a policy that was able to accept $10,000. So you bought $10,000 worth of death benefit coverage. But on year two, you said, hey, I only want to contribute $3,600 for the year. Well, your policy still had to be big enough 
to accept that first initial contribution. So ultimately, you bought yourself more death benefit coverage and your policy has a bigger max contribution per year than you wanted to pay moving forward. So any initial contribution, a lump sum, all it does is buy more death benefit. If you don't want to fund the policy up to $10,000 per year going forward, you're basically wasting space inside the IUL. The IUL likes balance. It likes equal contributions per year. That's not to say that you have to contribute the same amount of money every single year, but it needs to average out. But what I find is that people think that you can go and drop $20,000 into a policy and then pay $300 a month. You don't want to do this. And you know me. I am telling you that you want the minimum amount of death benefit for the most amount of money you want to contribute. So if the most amount of money that you want to contribute is $3,600 per year, then you don't want to put an initial contribution. And don't let anyone tell you, oh, there's a startup fee or there's a startup cost. No, there's not. Whatever you want to contribute to your IUL is what you contribute. And then it's on the agent to go and design that policy so that you're max funding it. And one other thing about lump sums going in the first year, when you do that, you tell an agent, hey, I want to put a lump sum and then I want to go into smaller premiums. What's going to happen? The agent is going to walk away with a way bigger commission than they would have if they had had you set up to max fund your policy. When you do that lump sum initially, you're not jump starting the cash value. You're giving the agent a huge commission over buying death benefit and ultimately making your policy bigger than you want it to be and you won't be filling it up all the way. You won't be max funding it. Question number seven. Can it change as the years go by, like start at $500 and add to it over the years, or is it a set amount from the beginning? So this question piggybacks great off of what I just said because yes, you could contribute more over time, right? You could increase your premium if, Policy was designed to let you increase your premium over time. So let's say you you want to contribute $500 right now, but you think that in the next five years, you want to be able to contribute $700. You can absolutely ask your agent to create that kind of room within your policy where you can go from $500 a month to $700 a month. No problem. Easy. However, that is a lot of responsibility on the agent. And I don't mean to like talk down agents like they can't handle it, but some of them can't. Some of them cannot handle giving someone a healthy amount of room within their IUL. Let's say you wanted to go from $500 a month to $1,000 a month. Okay. This is going to be a lot harder to accomplish. And I'm going to tell you that I doubt that most agents, even some of the good ones, would know what to do or how to handle this situation because $500 a month compared to $1,000 a month, that's a big jump. It's going to be tricky to get it right. And also, the first thing that I would ask you if you told me I want to go from here to here is how likely is it that that's going to happen? And at that point... 
would you be willing to open another policy instead and have two IULs? Because what happens in the event that you don't ever get to a place where you can contribute $1,000 a month? If you never get there to being able to contribute $1,000 a month like you hoped, then your policy was automatically made too big and you're not going to be filling it up and we can't go back and right size it. So if we do that from the beginning and then things don't pan out the way you hoped, we're kind of screwed. I always tell people this right from the beginning because oftentimes, you know, we got a young person saying, hey, I can contribute $300 right now, but I'm, I want to be able to contribute $600. And I ask them, well, what happens if you don't, right? From my understanding and from my experience, what happens if you don't is that I kind of screwed you over. Life is crazy and anything could happen. And I would, I would hate for you to never get to that place and then be upset that your policy is bigger than you wanted it to be. You're not building the cash value that you, that you wanted um, when we could have just had a max funded policy from the jump. Now, there's an exception here, okay? If you're around 35 and younger, we have a little bit more flexibility when it comes to increasing the size of our policy as we go. Unfortunately, if you're older than that 35 range, let's say 37 and above, we're kind of locked in. Don't have the ability to be able to change our policy. So for my younger people, there's something called a guaranteed insurability rider that says when you turn certain ages, you can make the size of your policy bigger, meaning that you can put more money into the policy. For example, the guaranteed insurability rider can be used at ages 25, 28, 31, 34, 37, and 40. So if you're a 22-year-old and you come to me and you say, Casey, I want to start an IUL. I want to put $200 a month into my policy, but I know that in 10 years, I'm going to want to put a lot more. I'm hoping for, you know, $500 a month. I am going to tell you, we're going to use the guaranteed insurability rider. I am not going to make your policy that big. And what's going to happen is you're going to fully fund your policy from the jump. I'm going to set it up so that that $200 is the max contribution. You're getting the most out of the policy. And when you turn 25, we can add death benefit coverage so that you can contribute more money to your policy. And then we can do the same thing when you turn 28 and 31 and 34 and 37 and 40. And if at those ages you don't, want to make your policy bigger because you're not in the place that you want it to be, then we don't have to. So can you increase your premium over time? It depends. Reach out to us. Find out. We will help you strategize and make sure that your money is working as hard as possible. Question number eight. I got an IUL. I got a UIL. I'm 28, paying $90 a month for $250,000 of death benefit. Is that good or bad? My friend, it's... It's not good. It's it's rough. 28 years old, $250,000 of death benefit, $90 a month is the contribution. A $100,000 death benefit has a max contribution limit of 6 grand. $250,000 of death benefit is going to be somewhere around the $20,000 per year range. So let's go back and think about this $90 a month, which is 1080 a year 
$250,000 death benefit. Not even close. It's not even close. I don't understand how an insurance agent can consciously set up a policy like this and be like, this is great. Especially because I know that this agent did not educate the person and say, hey, you're paying 1080 a year, but you can contribute this. That conversation was not had, which is what's so frustrating about it. Because if that conversation was had, the person purchasing the policy might have said, well, I can't contribute that much. Maybe I should get a smaller policy so I can make my money work harder. But they never got the opportunity to even understand or know that information to decide, hey, this policy is too big. When it comes to IULs, cash value life insurance policies, $90 a month is just not sufficient unless you're getting a policy for a child. Now, I'll set up 18-year-olds for $50 a month, $100 a month, but this person is 28. My recommendation to a 28-year-old is to be able to contribute around $300 a month. This isn't even a third of what we recommend as a standard. Ugh, I, I wish I could find this insurance agent and bring him on the podcast. Yeah, I wish I could bring him on the podcast and teach him a lesson. I wish they would listen to the podcast. Like, I don't know how to reach these people. I don't know if they listen to podcasts. Or like, If you worked with an agent, an insurance agent who set you up in a bad way, or maybe you didn't get the policy, but you almost did, and you know their social media handle, please put them, tag them in the comment section and tell them that they need to do some insurance 101 with Casey the Dollar. Have them watch the previous episode, How to Set Up a Shitty Policy. Um, and to this person, if you need help getting a new policy, learning about the policy that you do have and seeing if you can make use of it, please reach out to Power3 Financial. Send us over any policy documents you want us to review and we will do our best to to give you some better options um, or help guide you onto at least what your options are. Question number nine. Can we transfer other existing life insurance policies into one of these? So there is something called a 1035 exchange. It is taking the value, the cash value of a life insurance policy transferring it over to another life insurance policy. You can absolutely do that. An existing life insurance policy to a new life insurance policy. Let's say the cash value on your old life insurance policy was 20 grand. You can take that 20 grand of value, drop it into a new policy. We're even able to right size the new policy. So if you want to pay $500 a month into your new policy, you are Starting off with the 20 grand, but having a right sized death benefit and the contribution limits that match six grand a year. You don't have to have this massive policy to accept that 20 grand, which is really nice. So the answer is yes. But of course, there are some stipulations here. A 1035 exchange can only be done when the surrender period is up on the old policy. Sometimes that's 10 years. At a minimum, that's about 10 years. Sometimes it's as long as 20 years, right? So this is really important information to know, which is why I say you have to know what your surrender period is going into getting a policy. If your policy is not older than 10 years, it's possible you can still transfer the old policy into a new policy, but you might get charged that 10% penalty still. 
you might not get to take the entire value of that current policy and transfer it to a new one. And if the surrender period is 20 years and it's only year 10, you got 10 more years to go before you could take that value and drop it over into a new policy free and clear. So there's definitely a waiting period on being able to do that. Now, I think that this person might have been wondering if you can take just like any old insurance policy and put it into a new one. And I get this question a lot about, hey, can I take a term policy and transfer it into an IUL? You can't just take a policy with no cash value and flip it into a policy with a cash value. There's no value in the term policy to be transferred to a cash value life insurance policy. When you pay for a term policy, every dollar that you contribute is considered used premium. So if you're paying $20 a month to have a death benefit over your head, that $20 is being used to maintain your policy and there's nothing to transfer over into a new policy. So it has to be cash value policy to cash value policy and you have to have exceeded that surrender period to have the cash value freed up to be able to transfer it. And last but not least, we have uh, an oldie but a goodie. (laughs) Question number 10. What's the difference between an IUL and MPI? I would love to tell you. So an IUL is an indexed universal life insurance policy. MPI is maximum premium indexing, and it's a trademark. Okay, because underneath this maximum premium indexing trademark is an IUL, an indexed universal life insurance policy. So both are IULs. Okay, they're both life insurance policies, but MPI has some fancy stuff sprinkled on it and a new catchy name. If the IUL is the foundation for MPI, what makes it different from just your OG IUL? An MPI policy says that after year three of having your policy, you can take advantage of what's called the match relock program. On year three, you are able to get a line of credit equal to the amount of cash value that you have inside your IUL. Okay, so if you have 10 grand inside your cash value, you're able to apply for a line of credit of 10 grand. Then what happens is the line of credit is loaned into your policy as premium to add more premium dollars to your policy, ultimately increasing the value of the policy, ultimately earning you more interest because you're earning interest on a bigger amount of money. But why is this beneficial? What happens because the line of credit is a loan, right? You're taking the line of credit and loaning it into your policy. There is interest attached to the loan. What Curtis Ray hopes will happen is that the 4% interest rate attached to the loan, that it'll actually earn you more interest because when your policy earns 6%, let's say, that extra 2% is called a positive arbitrage. And Curtis says that over time, that positive arbitrage can drastically increase the value of your policy. So you loan money into your policy from the line of credit, you earn a positive arbitrage, but because your policy itself is earning more than the interest rate, and this ultimately gives you more money down the line. It sounds, what's the problem here? 
The problem is, where is this line of credit coming from? Who is responsible for this line of credit? And what happens if the policy doesn't perform and you don't earn the arbitrage? Well, you as the policy owner, are definitely responsible for the line of credit. I actually talked to someone this morning who told me that he talked to an MPI agent and they said, hey, at year three, you can apply for a line of credit. So you as the policy owner get to go and say, hey, I want a line of credit in equal size to my cash value and see if you get approved for it. And then if the arbitrage doesn't work out in your favor, you are also responsible for all of the interest attached to those loans. When you have these loans coming out and the interest attached, even in MPI's illustrations, it says that the floor becomes negative 4%, meaning you do not have a 0% floor anymore. Your floor is now negative 4% because of that interest. So there is no safety with the 0% floor with the MPI. This third party is giving money. You ultimately owe that money and it could not work out. Why I'm so hesitant on this idea is because the IUL is capable of earning positive arbitrage without adding this extra line of credit. You don't need the line of credit to be able to earn a positive arbitrage inside an IUL policy. All you have to do is loan money out of your cash value using a participating fixed interest rate and you can earn a positive arbitrage. There's no extra money. You don't have this extra debt on your hands and you can still take advantage of the extra 2% that Curtis markets without this relock program. If you need more information on MPI versus IUL, I happen to have done two full episodes on MPI, and one of them is actually our first episode ever. So make sure you go check it out. I go into crazy depth about MPI, um, and then there is another one where I continue the conversation. So yeah, again, if you if you think I'm an asset, leave me a sunglasses emoji. Let me know um, if you liked this episode if you got value from it. And if you have questions, please put them in the comment section and maybe we will answer them when we do another Q&A. I would love to make sure that all of your questions get answered. That is one of our biggest priorities here at the You're an Asset podcast and at Power3 Financial. We're constantly wondering, what have we not talked about yet? What have we not spilled um, for the public? We want to make sure we're putting out every single piece of information possible because we do this for you guys. We do this for the listeners. We do this for our followers. We do this for our clients. We do this for our potential clients. Um, and we do this for other agents too. Because in a way, they're almost more important than consumers. Because I need agents to be better. <laughs> and that really, that really keeps me going to make sure that um, we're putting out honest information that is valuable and educational. And helps somebody do a better job. Or help somebody make a better purchase. That's all for today, you guys. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the You're an Asset podcast where I'm your host, Casey the Dollar. And I'll see you next week. Bye. The You're an Asset podcast is not giving financial advice.
We are not licensed financial advisors, and our licensing is strictly in insurance products. The information that we talk about is specific to the products that we work with. We cannot guarantee that other agents will have the same product features that we discuss on the show.